Hello and welcome to Sonnet Cast, William Shakespeare's sonnets recited, revealed and relived. I am Sebastian Michael and this is Sonnet 67. Ah, wherefore with infection should he live and with his presence grace impiety? that sin by him advantage should achieve and lace itself with his society why should false painting imitate his cheek and steal dead seeming of his living hue why should poor beauty indirectly seek roses of shadow since his rose is true why should he live now nature bankrupt is beggared of blood to blush through lively veins for she hath no exchequer now but his and proud of many lives upon his gains o him she stores to show what wealth she had in days long since before these last so bad Sonnet 67 picks up on the deeply dissatisfied mood of Sonnet 66 and develops the theme of a world that has lost its way right through Sonnet 68. On the surface, Sonnets 67 and 68 concern themselves entirely with the then relatively new fashion much scorned by Shakespeare for heavy makeup and big wigs and their wearers' futile endeavours to endow themselves with a fake and therefore ghastly pseudo-beauty that stands in such stark contrast to his young lover's natural and therefore genuine beauty. But Sonnet 67 also, and unlike Sonnet 68, employs several layered phrases and some obvious as well as some more dubious double meanings that may hint at an underlying unease about the young man's conduct or the state of his reputation, the two of which, of course, to quite some extent going together. This while at best subtly suggested in Sonnet 67, will become the direct subject of Sonnets 69 and 70, and once again far more forcefully still in Sonnets 94, 95 and 96. As always when dealing with pairs, we will look at Sonnets 67 and 68 together in the next episode, while focusing on the first one, Sonnet 67, in this one. What then does Sonnet 67 actually mean? Ah, wherefore with infection should he live, and with his presence grace impiety? Ah, why should he live in amongst all this corruption and with his presence in a morally deprived or sick world, grace or adorn impiety, here implying not only irreligious, irreverent behaviour, but a society that lacks or has lost any moral compass? Shakespeare does not elaborate on who the he referred to is, but from what follows it's entirely clear and obvious that he's talking about his young lover, who is by now well noted for his beauty, and about no one else. But 
The phrasing of the opening question and the slightly melodramatic exclamation at its very beginning immediately pose the question how sincere and how literal or poetic is Shakespeare being with this sonnet? In the collection, it follows on from Sonnet 66 with its unrelenting enumeration of ills, and so ostensibly the infection here referred to could absolutely be simply that of a world thus corrupted. But we can't rule out that our poet is here using his skills to insinuate that the young man himself has been tarnished, either by his behaviour or even physically by actually contracting an infectious disease, or quite conceivably both, one as the result of the other. But we have to be extremely careful with reading the lines so literally. It is certainly, as a primary meaning, far more likely that Shakespeare is talking about infection in the world as a whole, a moral type of infection. That sin by him advantage should achieve and lace itself with his society? The question continues, should he live with infection, whatever this infection so referred to here is, just so that sin can benefit from his presence and adorn or beautify itself by associating with him? The fact that sin now explicitly enters the equation supports the notion, mostly just hinted at in the first two lines, that we are here not only in the context of a societal malaise, but also of either a specific sexual misdemeanour of some description or of sexual misbehaviour more generally. Meanwhile, lace itself with his society, quite apart from the extremely pleasing sibilant sound, has an equally gratifying double meaning of, on the one hand, as above, decorating itself with his company in the way that a garment or a piece of clothing or even a tablecloth or a napkin may be made to look pretty with a piece of lace, which would have been highly prized in Shakespeare's day, but also of interlacing itself with him in his company in the sense of entwining with him. The layering of meanings is unlikely to be a coincidence and lends further impetus to the supposition that there is more at stake here than at one first and single glance might meet the eye. Why should false painting imitate his cheek and steal dead seeming of his living hue? Why should fake make-up imitate or copy his cheek for which read his face and, with an appearance of death, steal of his real-life beauty? We have noted on at least two previous occasions the disdain Shakespeare reserves for make-up and fakery through cosmetics, and the primary meaning of false painting here is undoubtedly this, the false for which read fake painted faces that become fashionable around this time, increasingly also for men, the appearance of the fop with thick layers of face paint, often ghostly white, paired with artificial rosiness in the cheeks and lips, this latter also clearly being alluded and referred to further in the next couple of lines. 
The fashion for dead pale faces during the second half of the 16th century partly stemmed from the ideal at the time of a virginal snow-white skin and it was further propagated by Queen Elizabeth I herself who, after contracting smallpox in 1562, took to wearing increasingly heavy white makeup to cover the blemishes on her face which gave her the iconic white-faced appearance we know so well from several portraits of hers from the era. Whether or not Shakespeare means to suggest a secondary meaning with false painting of flattering and therefore false portraiture, or even perhaps on a tertiary level similarly exaggerated poetic representations by other poets, we don't know. It can't be ruled out, and fairly soon in the series we will get strong evidence of another poet encroaching on Will's territory, but the idea of false painting of either of this kind, portrait or poem, stealing dead seeming of his living hue, feels, to me at least, really rather far-fetched. Now, the quarter edition for this line has Dead Seeing, which presents the first of two textual problems in this sonnet. Opinion is divided over whether dead seeing can mean of lifeless appearance or whether a letter M has gone missing from the manuscript here. Shakespeare does not use the phrase dead seeing anywhere in his entire output, but nor does he use dead seeming anywhere else. In fact, he doesn't use dead, a word that appears no fewer than 602 times in his collected works, much in combination with any other word to mean anything other than someone or something being quite literally dead, the exceptions being dead knight in sonnet 43, pale dead in Henry V, dead midnight in Measure for Measure and Richard III, dead drunk in Othello, where incidentally he also uses after long seeming dead, which is not the same as dead seeming but comes close, dead time in Richard II, dead killing in Richard III and the rape of Lucrece, dead silence in Two Gentlemen of Verona and dead cold in the two noble kinsmen, whereby the two noble kinsmen is generally now attributed to William Shakespeare in collaboration with John Fletcher. In light of all this, I am inclined here to adopt the emendation that you see in many editions of the sonnets to dead seeming. Why should poor beauty indirectly seek roses of shadow, since his rose is true? Why should poor beauty seek fake roses, roses that are mere shadows of the real thing, when his, my lover's, rose is genuine? In other words, why should beauty itself, which is to be pitied in a world like this and therefore poor, go around looking for ways to beautify other people with artificial rosiness in their cheeks, when his beauty is, as we have heard many times before, the real thing? Why should he live, now nature bankrupt is, beggared of blood to blush through lively veins? 
Why should he even live, now that nature is bankrupt, bereft of blood to run through veins and lending her life? Nature itself has been robbed in this appalling world of fakery and ghastly pretend beauty and is left with no blood to course through her body. This echoes the dead-seeming mask-like appearance of these heavily made-up faces that Shakespeare so intensely dislikes. William Shakespeare is not one to go all out for bold alliterations wherever he can. He tends to use the device fairly sparingly. Not here, though, and the words are so ruddily evocative it's hard to resist the temptation to find that he is being deliberately provocative. If you say this line out loud, even with a hint of dismay in your voice, beggared of blood to blush through lively veins, you get a sound that is more than a little reminiscent of buggered, which at around that time comes to acquire its sexually explicit and also illicit meaning. For a wordsmith of Shakespeare's calibre, not to be aware of this is all but inconceivable and in combination with infection, sin and blush, we can probably say that there is some serious punning intended here. For she hath no exchequer now but his, and proud of many lives upon his gain because she nature now today has no treasury implied is of course treasury of beauty left except his meaning that he is the last beautiful treasure she has and so she now lives upon his gains whatever metaphorical interest the investment that he represents may yield the sonnet's second textual issue comes with proud of many. Some editors emend this to prived of many, to suggest that nature is now deprived of many, indeed most, or in fact all, other treasuries of beauty that she once held. This would certainly make sense, sort of, and the suggestion that a typesetter might misread a manuscript's prived for proud is entirely plausible. It is therefore very inviting indeed to adopt this, but proud also makes some sort of sense. Personified nature could be understood as being immodestly proud of many other lesser beauties that she has, whilst actually drawing any real sustenance she gets from him. Neither of these two readings is wholly satisfactory, but my approach is, as you know, to whenever possible not mess with the words that we have, unless it really forces itself upon us. And so, even though you could argue that just above, with dead seeing, the forcefulness of necessity is not that compelling either, and there I did go with the emendation here, by contrast, I feel inclined not to do so and stick with what we have in the quarto edition and read proud of many. Oh, him she stalls to show what wealth she had in days long since before these last so bad. Oh, him, my lover, she, 
nature keeps in store as the last remaining example to show the world what extraordinary wealth she used to have in the long distant past before these recent days including the ones we are living through now which are so absolutely appalling. We have asked ourselves once or twice before when listening to a sonnet by William Shakespeare, what brings this on? Sonnet 67, coming so hard on the heels of Sonnet 66, in which everything is basically wrong with the world, appears to only partly pose this question in a culture as bad as the one portrayed in Sonnet 66, the despicable habit of people, men as well as women, to cake themselves in layers of makeup is just one more thing to abhor as far as Shakespeare is concerned, and we already know what Shakespeare thinks of makeup and of fake beauty, in inverted commas, in general. We first get a whiff of his umbrage in Sonnet 20, where he notes that the young man does have the face of a woman, but distinguishes it as one that is with nature's own hand painted, in contrast to the artificial face paint worn by women at the time. Immediately after, in Sonnet 21, he speaks of the muse who is stirred by a painted beauty to his verse, again drawing a clear distinction between himself and that kind of poet, making it clear that the beauty that inspires him is of a different category entirely. Within the sonnets, this here, Sonnet 67, is the strongest expression yet of his displeasure, referring to false painting that imitates the real beauty of his lover and is found to be either dead-seeing or dead-seeming, and in any case, stealing from his genuine hue. Still, it is hard to believe that there is nothing else to it. True enough, when we find ourselves agitated about things that upset us, then another thing that riles us may well prompt a complimentary outburst. That is not overly puzzling. What makes us do the equivalent of a double-take is the language deployed and the vehemence with which Shakespeare vents his spleen. But we are once more here in the realm of conjecture if we start drawing conclusions. The poem itself does not yield anything resembling any conclusive clues, and in fact Sonnet 68, which clearly continues the argument from this one, appears to focus entirely on precisely this cavil of Shakespeare's, beauty being bastardised by artifice, here, in Sonnet 67, it is makeup, in Sonnet 68, it is wigs. And so, maybe we need to contend ourselves with what we have and say, so be it. In the absence of any proof otherwise, let us assume that Shakespeare extends his rant from Sonnet 66 and devotes two entire poems to two personal buckbears holding up his lover against them as the paradigm of what beauty is and was and 
should be and telling the world how wrong it gets things when it comes to beauty too, as well as everything else he's already talked about in 66. This may strike us as a little anticlimactic, and for the time being it is, but bear in mind we are only just approaching the halfway point in the collection, and we haven't even listened to 68 yet. John Kerrigan, in his new Penguin edition of the sonnets, goes as far as to say that, quote, this poem, especially in the wake of 66 with its self-pitting lament, marks a crucial stage in the poet's account of the youth, end of quote. And this may yet prove true for several reasons that will become clearer as we go on. We seem to be entering a phase with Sonnet 67 in which William Shakespeare gets ever more painfully torn between his love for the young man and the things, real or imagined, that his young man gets up to or is reputed to be getting up to between his own age, reputation and status as compared to that of the young lover and between his need of the young lover's approval and the young lover's soon-to-become-evident interest in another writer's attentions, which either are or at any rate seem to William Shakespeare to be of more than a purely poetic nature. And what makes matters worse for Will is that unlike the critical episode that starts with Sonnet 33, where he very obviously finds out exactly what has been going on and equally obviously receives the kind of apology express or conveyed in remorse that allows him to swiftly forgive the youth his straying ways, in the crisis that currently unfolds, he seems to be as much at a loss as we are. Or, perhaps more accurately and more to the point, if we feel at a loss, then it may well be because William Shakespeare is at a loss. Not just, as we saw in the self-pitying, yes, but also heartfelt, viscerally lived lament of 66 at the end of his tether, but also totally out of sorts. Our poet, we get the impression, starting with Sonnet 67 and increasingly so from now on in for quite some time, doesn't know whether he's coming or going, whether he's being humoured or hated, respected or rejected, loved or left by the wayside. And this may account for one particularly noteworthy facet of sonnets 67 and 68 that we haven't actually properly noted yet, although we mentioned it in passing. In this pair, William Shakespeare talks about his young man as he in the third person singular, not as he did in the astonishingly self-abasing sonnets 57 and 58 and in the much more philosophically settled sonnet 59 as you, not as in sonnets 60 through 62 as thou, but 
as in fact has been the case since Sonnet 63, as he, except that curiously of this batch, only Sonnet 63 actually refers to him as he, and it also, as we observed at the time, speaks of him explicitly as my love. Sonnet 64, for all its gorgeous melancholy beauty, does not refer to the young man as either love or he or you or thou, but as that which it fears to lose, where it is a thought that is as a death. Sonnet 65 again talks about the lover in the third person as my love, but without calling him he, and exactly the same is true of Sonnet 66. If this prompts, incidentally, as for some people it does, any suggestion that these two sonnets could therefore be about a man or a woman, with sonnets 67 and 68 any gender ambiguity, however tentative, so as not to say spurious in the larger context of the sonnets it may be, is swept off the table, these two sonnets talk about a man in the third person singular. But, talking about the person you love in the third person without having introduced them as your love is oddly impersonal. It is something that, should you be interested in these nuances as much as I am, has rarely happened before. Sonnet 19, right at the beginning of the series as we know it, addresses itself to time and speaks about my love's fair brow and also identifies him unmistakably as a he. Sonnet 21 is the first sonnet addressed to a general audience and refers to my love without specifying their gender but this coming immediately after Sonnet 20, which spells out the fact that Shakespeare's love is a man who looks like a woman, wandering greatly at that juncture about their gender would seem disingenuous to the point of being obtuse. Sonnet 25 is unique in that it does not mention the lover by any term or pronoun, but simply concludes, Then happy I that love and am beloved, where I may not remove nor be removed. Sonnet 28 doesn't mention the love except in indirect speech, but it comes in a strong pairing with Sonnet 27, which refers to the lover as thee and thy, for which read thou. Then we come to Sonnet 33, which marks the beginning of the outrage of the young lover's fling with Shakespeare's own mistress, and this is the first and thus far only time where Shakespeare addresses a general unspecified reader or listener and talks about his lover as he, having first named him as my son to compare him with the actual sun in the sky. Sonnet 56, just for the sake of completeness, doesn't refer to the lover at all in any way, but addresses itself to love itself and asks of love that it renew itself. What do we get from all this? We mostly get the idea that Shakespeare is just as we thought and knew and always felt only. 
He does exactly what you or I do when we are upset with the person we love. He refers to them in the third person, singular. He talks about him, not to him. How often have you encountered a couple at a party or at a dinner where suddenly one person talks about the other, mentioning things that irk them? Oh, I would love to go fishing, but he has decided to turn vegan. Oh, she won't let me buy the llama for our garden. He gets ever so tetchy, he does. Granted, ah, wherefore with infection should he live, and with his presence grace in piety is in something of a different league. But then it would be. It's a Shakespeare sonnet, after all going as we are by the words and the words alone, or as much by the words alone as we believe we can, we can take note of the fact that Shakespeare, only really properly for the second time in the series, switches to talking about his lover as he while addressing a general audience, and we can take note of the fact that the first time he did so, he did so when he had reason to be upset about his lover. Sonnet 67 somewhat hints at there being an underlying issue, which is something that its companion piece, Sonnet 68, won't do. But Sonnet 69 most certainly will, and it will do so in a manner that may yet suffice to make the odd jaw drop. A reminder, just very briefly, that you can find all the sonnets we've talked about so far, together with the transcript of this podcast, at sonnetcast.com. There's also a contact form there should you wish to get in touch with any suggestions, queries, corrections or thoughts. And there's a donate button if you feel flush and would like to support the making of this podcast, for which I am intensely grateful. And thank you to those of you who have done so over the last couple of weeks, over the festive period. I very much appreciate it. And it is, in fact, beyond measure helpful to me to continue with the project and a bit of good news, which amounts really to blowing my own trumpet. But it may interest you to know that not only do you find yourselves, my listeners, dispersed across the globe in over 70 countries, but according to Listen Notes, which is a podcast database and search engine, Sonnetcast now ranks among the top 10% podcasts globally. Thank you for listening and do share the podcast, of course, because you never know. The sonnets are something of a niche interest, but every so often I hear of somebody who says, I've just discovered this through Sonnetcast and that makes my heart sing. And in that spirit, I do hope that you will join me again here on Sonnetcast, where we recite, reveal and relive the sonnets of William Shakespeare. Mm-hmm.